praise God. So thank you for joining us today, whether you're here in the auditorium or if we have some in the parking lot. We're grateful for our parking lot people too. I don't say hi to you every week. But we continue to broadcast the sermon on short-range FM radio. Uh, for those who need an alternative way to join our worship, may the Lord encourage us all. I think some of the headphones we use use that FM signal as well. Hopefully that helps uh, with the listening and comprehending. We're trying to do a better, better job with that. So we're continuing to dig into 1 Corinthians to be taught, to be challenged, to grow our understanding, to find words to help us change, to be more like Jesus, more like Jesus in our understanding and in our actions, and in, in the very desires of our hearts. So this morning we're in chapter 7, where Paul is continuing to deal with issues related to our sexuality. But now Paul, he shifts a little bit to deal with specific issues that the church in Corinth, they wrote to him about. They had certain questions that they put before Paul. So now, in chapter 7, he begins to address those. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, Paul says now, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. So now this, this first part of this verse here, for the matters that I wrote to you about, in other parts of 1 Corinthians, we see this phrase, now concerning. And that phrase pops up several times. And so we can actually reconstruct the letter that the Corinthian churches wrote to Paul, the questions that they had uh, to put before the apostle. So what are those questions? Well, they're kind of divided into three major categories. So these were, these were the content, at least this, it could have been more, uh, were content of the letter that they wrote to the Apostle Paul to get his, his word on these things. So the first one that we're dealing with today, chapter 7, 1 and following, matters related to marriage and celibacy. And then later on, he addresses their questions of matters related to idolatry and food sacrifice to idols and things like that. And then finally, in chapter 12, uh, he addresses the questions that they had on use of spiritual gifts, uh, issues related to, to the use of gifts. So this first phrase of the verse that we look at, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that is in quotations, you will notice. That is something that they, uh, the Corinthians, were saying and they have written this, apparently, in this letter that they have going to, to Paul. Uh, and so that context, it suggests that there were some among the Corinthians that regarded sexual abstinence in marriage as more spiritual. Uh, it was a more spiritual thing to uh, abstain from relationships with a wife or your husband, uh, rather than to continue that activity. And... Uh, Paul's kind of resounding answer to that is no. No. Uh, again, so much of the theology of uh, our understanding of sexuality as Christians, it goes back 
to Genesis. So the statement that the Corinthians had made in their letter to Paul, it goes against something that uh, against something that God had already said. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what the Corinthians were saying. This is what God says in Genesis 2. It is not good for a man to be alone. From chapter 2, verse 18. You see, the reality in Corinth was that sexual immorality was occurring. So whether one partner or both partners had decided to shut things off to be more spiritual, the reality was it was creating a situation where more sexual immorality was happening. And thus it is violating what God had already said in Genesis chapter 2. It is not good for the man to be alone. Paul goes on and he says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Uh, the first thing I would like to say is this is not a license for the partner, for the partner with a greater sexual appetite to bully, force, or coerce the spouse, uh, uh, your spouse to have sex with you whenever you want. I think that's an abuse of what Paul is saying here. It's not scriptural justification for selfishness. But rather, the married couple is invited to find their special ground together. There is mutual say in this intimate relationship. Everyone has skin in the game. Okay. The emphasis on mutuality, which recognizes each person's sexual desires, their sexual needs, it creates the fertile ground where a loving and respectful relationship can grow. Because there is mutual responsibility and mutual say in the matter of sex and marriage, there is an assumption that there is going to be quality communication happening back and forth between the husband and the wife. So two general observations uh, I would like to make as someone who's done some marriage counseling with people. Uh, and these are not a fix-all for every situation that might come. I personally, just as an aside, I dislike the stigma that has often existed around counseling or therapy because in some cases they may be exactly what is needed. I think, they are, I think of them as more tools available to us that God provides. Uh, but my first observation is a lot of times Christian couples have not been open and honest in their communication with each other in regard to this. Our marriage should be a place of deep listening and deep sharing, including the matters of our sexuality. What is working, what is not. A place to share our desires with each other. And my second observation that I would make is that it's surprising how many couples have not thought to pray about and invite the Lord into their marriage relationship even to ask for the Lord's help and blessing.
blessing in the sexual relationship. I'm not saying that you need to make this weird in some way, uh, but pray about these things. This, this is a gift within the context of marriage that God gives us. So another thing that I should point out is, uh, you know, Paul gets a bad rap with women a lot of times. But let me just say, the guy is an equal opportunity offender. He just calls it the way he sees it. In Greco-Roman culture, there were plenty of people who would say, yeah, the wife, absolutely, she does not have authority over her own body. She needs to yield that to her husband. But no one in this day and in these cultures were saying, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. No one at that time was saying that. It was only Christian women then who had that ability to say those things in that culture that didn't give them a place or a voice or a place to stand in these things. A place where they could say, you know, uh, Buster, go shower that body of mine. And while you're at it, brush your teeth. You know, I don't know. They had standing that other people didn't have in that relationship. That somehow in the covenant of marriage, there's an equality in this partnership that comes about. Do not deprive each other. Except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession and not as a command. So what is the concession that's being made here? That the only time sexual relations for a couple would cease is for a short, mutually agreed upon time in order to pray. As an individual may fast from food in order to dig deep into their prayer life, so a married couple may temporarily abstain in order to pray deeply about specific things, maybe specific things related to their relationship or specific things related to the family. But Paul says, for a short time. Not long enough that you open the door for temptation again. But also, Paul doesn't say this as a command. He only allows for the possibility of it. So of all the things that you would possibly cease this relationship with together, and possibly for a short time for prayer. But that's kind of it. The list of exceptions that Paul kind of gives us with this stuff. If the pathway of marriage is the way that you have chosen to honor God with your life, then the two shall become one flesh. And the two should become one flesh on a regular basis, is Paul's thinking here. Theologically speaking, Paul understands the love between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. To be a picture of the love between Christ and the church. So in fact, Paul, he is very enthusiastic about Christian marriage. 
then we'll see now he is just as enthusiastic about life as a single person, which in fact is what he has chosen for himself in the way that he lives. So he goes on to say this, I wish that you were all as I am. He's just speaking to the goodness of a single life. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Both married life and single life, they are gifts from God. They both require special grace or gifting from God in order to thrive in either one of these lifestyles. Paul recognizes both singleness and marriage as conditions that are holy, blessed by God. The grace of God provides the gifts necessary that enable either a person to remain single or a person to remain married and thrive in either one of those contexts. So singleness or marriage, it, in a lot of ways it involves your personal choice, but in some ways it's also bigger than personal choice and preference. It also depends on gifts from God. It depends on opportunities given to you, the circumstances that God affords to your life. And so I would say you need to have wisdom to discern your gifts and circumstances and ask for the Lord's help. And it's not an easy thing always. Some people are happily single. Some people are single because they haven't found the right fit or they haven't had the right opportunity. Some were married for a long time and find themselves single again. The Lord can help in any life circumstance and situation you find yourself in. When it comes to your singleness, when it comes to your relationships around you, when it comes to a marriage, when it comes to your desires. Trust the Lord can help you order those things and figure it all out. He goes on to say, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It is possible that Paul could have been a widower or had a previous marriage. We don't know. I tend to think, and I think there's enough. Well, I tend to think that he was single throughout his whole life. But that doesn't close. We don't know enough to say definitively, absolutely not. But basically, he is dividing uh, single people into two categories here. Those who have always been single, and those who are single again. And he says it is good to remain single. In other words, don't be so quick to discard your singleness as something lesser or something not as good. There are a lot of good things associated with singleness. And if you jump into the wrong relationships, it is only gonna, it's not gonna go from difficult to easy. It can very easily go from difficult to way more difficult. So we need to depend on the Lord's guidance for all of these things. 
And so this phrase, uh, not be able to control yourself, I think that in, in the English it comes across a little bit harsh. Because although it may be different to do marriage God's way or to do singleness God's way, both of these paths require a lot of self-control. Uh, but if you are burning with passion, it may be an indication that singleness is not your gift. And if marriage or remarriage to another single Christian presents itself, it may be the right choice. And keep in mind, gifts can change over time. And what may have seemed impossible at 20 may be possible at 70 or even preferable. Uh, sometime after my grandfather died, someone asked my grandmother if she ever thought about getting married again, to which she replied, why in the world would I ever agree to wash another man's underwear again? <laughs> she was clearly done. So, praise God. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So now Paul addresses the issue of divorce. As a Christian, you need to understand that marriage is a commitment for life. Divorce is not on the options menu. You don't leave an escape clause for when things get hard or you're not happy with the situation anymore. See, in Paul's day, it was pretty easy and common to divorce and discard a spouse for pretty much every, any or every reason. Just on a whim, you could get rid of one partner and find the next. And in our time, I think the idea of marriage as a covenant for life is also being challenged. It's also being watered down. And because of the, I think because the beauty and the commitment of marriage as a covenant has been cast aside by so many, uh, there are younger generations now, many of whom they grew up with the ugliness and pain of divorced parents. They don't even bother to get married now against God's desire or God's plan. See, uh, for Christians, the covenant of marriage isn't just a promise that you make to your spouse. It is a promise that you have made to God. You need to see it that way and remember that part of it as well. So the first thing that Paul says about divorce is basically you just don't do it. The second thing he says is that if you do, you should remain single. I think this is a way that it leaves open the door of possibility of reconciliation. If you, if you do find yourself separated from a spouse or divorced from a spouse, you don't just run and jump into your next best thing. So what does Paul mean by the phrase, not I, but the Lord, or, and later on he says, I, but the Lord. These little sections in parentheses. Is Paul suggesting that there are some scriptures that have more authority and some that have less? 
going on here in 1 Corinthians. Paul isn't trying to give you grounds to help you pick and choose what you're going to obey and what's maybe not as important to obey. What can you worm out of a little bit more? Paul is simply pointing out, uh, not I, but the Lord. He's talking about Jesus, what he has already spoken about the issue of divorce. He's already said things, recorded in the Gospels. Uh, and then in 7.12, he says, I, not, uh, not the Lord. It doesn't mean it's less important. It's just addressing a situation that Paul had not addressed already or has not already been addressed in Scripture. Namely, what do you do in a situation where a Christian is married to a non-believer? And that's the, the, the question that he is addressing there when he says that. So a word that Jesus had already spoken about divorce, you can find in Mark 10, for example. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus said, it is because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let those words have their impact. Let them have their say. This doesn't mean I wouldn't recommend marriage as a cure-all for every relationship. This doesn't mean that I would recommend someone staying in a clearly abusive situation. This doesn't mean that there are no exemptions or exceptions given in the scripture because there are. And this doesn't mean that if you have a divorce in your history that there is no hope for you. See, some of you have lived very different lives before you came to Christ. Some of you, after you came to Christ, have divorced someone or been divorced by someone. Some of us have the need of repentance of things. Some of us have repented of those things a long time ago. Whatever your situation is, married or divorced, you've done everything right or you've stumbled along the way. It doesn't mean that you don't have a future ahead of you full of the grace and the love of God. See, Jesus is more concerned about where we're going. And his blood and his love can deal with where any person is there. But I say, let the scriptures challenge you. Let them challenge you. Let them beat you up a bit. Consider the possibility that God's way of doing things is best. Consider the possibility that you don't run the universe. I have to tell myself that sometimes. The more and more a person refuses to do things God's way, inevitably their circumstances will become more and more difficult, more and more messy more and more 
accept that divorce is something that God hates. God hates it. Uh, you can read about that in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. You don't fly the airplane of your marriage with the backup parachute of divorce in mind. Oh, I got that parachute in the backseat in case I need it. In your marriage, you and your wife, you don't have parachutes in that. Maybe you're more like uh, kamikaze pilots. Let me think about that. That might not be an altogether happy analogy. I think a lot of times people choose divorce because they think it will fix their problems. They might be in an unbearable situation and it feels excruciatingly painful. But when you go through that, you inevitably discover when you get a divorce that not everything that was broken gets fixed. Sometimes you're just trading one set of problems for another. Maybe it's just adding a whole other set of problems. And things especially get messy if there are children involved. There are a lot of kids in this world who bear the scars of their parents' fights and their parents' divorces. A lot of people in this world have been affected by the pain of a divorce. The spouse you divorced, the spouse who divorced you, parents who had divorces, parents who have children who got divorces, your children who have been through divorces. There's a pain that is always going to be there with that. And for some, it's more recent. And for some, it was a long time ago. Some of us in this room have not done well in our marriages. Some of us in this room have not done well in our singleness. Some of us still carry a lot of bottled-up guilt Sometimes churches have done a better job making people feel bad than they have at helping people heal and pick up the broken pieces of their lives. Let me now speak. Let me now speak from my spirit to yours. It's not my job to teach you hermeneutical gymnastics to twist around the parts of the Bible you don't like. I don't make excuses for God, and I do not apologize for His word. I don't apologize for what He says He expects from you, whether single 
my task, as I understand it, to bring you before the raw and unfiltered Word of God as much as possible. To speak that Word as clearly and concisely as I can. To let God's Word have its say, let it have its effect, let it reach out in its power.
It binds up the wounds of your past. It gives you hope in what is coming in the future. What is the heart of Jesus in this? He says hard things to us. What is his heart? What does he do when mean-spirited religious leaders pull in front of him a woman caught in the act of adultery?
way for us to chase hard after those difficult things. You see, the heart of your Savior is not to rub your nose in your failures and in your history. The heart of your Savior, Savior is to help you get back up and walk with your head lifted high into the glorious future that he has planned for you. Because that future has already been paid for and purchased by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you have needs for the prayers of this church, uh, there's some issue that we can be praying about for you if you want to share with the congregation. If you want to put on the Lord in baptism and take a step deeper into the body of Christ, uh, we have an opportunity for you to do that. And uh, I'll be right up here up front if you need to come see me. But let's go ahead.